From the FJC in Washington, D.C., I'm Mark Sherman, and this is Off Paper. Today we explore research in neurodevelopment, adversity and trauma, and how a deeper understanding of this subject matter among criminal justice professionals can inform their practice and improve outcomes for justice-involved individuals, their families, and their communities. My guest, Dr. Robert Kinsher, is a clinical and forensic psychologist and attorney with more than 30 years of experience in forensic mental health. Between 2015 and 2017, he was a senior fellow in law and neuroscience at the Project on Law and Applied Neuroscience, a collaboration between the Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior at Massachusetts General Hospital and the Petrie Flom Center for Health Law Policy at Harvard Law School. He's currently Associate Vice President at William James College in Newton, Massachusetts, and is on the Doctoral Clinical Psychology program faculty there. Dr. Kinsherf also has broad governmental experience, having held senior state government positions in Massachusetts, administering inpatient forensic mental health services, juvenile and court clinic operations and diversion programs, as well as specialty courts for persons with mental illness and significant addiction, trauma, and multi-system involvement. Dr. Kinsherf has been involved for many years with teaching and training, both nationally and internationally, for judges, court teams, probation, pretrial services, parole, and juvenile justice system and clinical professionals. So stay tuned, folks, because the doctor is in the house. Robert Kinsherf, welcome to the program. Good to be talking with you, Mark. It's great to have you here. Um, you know, I want to begin with a discussion of adolescent neurodevelopment and what it means behaviorally, both in adolescence as an individual moves into adulthood. So, Robert, my first question is, you know, what's going on in the typical adolescent brain physiologically, uh, and how does that development manifest generally in terms of an individual's behavior? And then my second question is, what typically happens both physiologically and behaviorally as an individual moves into adulthood? Those are great questions, and questions that would have been impossible to answer without recent developments in neuroimaging, which have continue to inform us about the really remarkable transition between the onset of adolescence at puberty and early young adulthood. But basically what's happening, Mark, is that uh, there are two major periods of pronounced uh, brain development in uh, the human life cycle. One is fetal and early childhood, infancy to early childhood uh, brain development. And the second is with the onset of puberty. Just as with the kinds of brain development that we see uh, in, uh, in utero and then in infancy and early childhood, with the onset of puberty, the teen brain begins essentially a process of reconstructing itself. And I'll get to that in a moment. But first, let me tell you a little bit about how this process of reconstruction works. With the onset of puberty, the teen brain begins to mature, and it does so from back to front. That is to say, in the same progression as it developed uh, during fetal development and infancy and very early childhood. So starting at the back of the brain, the back of your head, which is responsible for things such as automatic functions like maintaining your heart rate, uh, maintaining uh, your body temperature and the like. In stages, the teen brain will mature first from the back area of the brain, then through the midbrain, and then finally to the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that allows us to be at our most human in terms of our ability for uh, controlling and directing our behavior, anticipating uh, alternative futures and making decisions about how to get to those futures, to think abstractly, uh, to accurately assess risks and, and the like. So the way that this happens is that um, the brain has overproduced um, uh, synapses and gray and white matter. Um, and what's going on is a process of pruning. That is to say, these brain uh, connections are increasingly about the business of organizing themselves into systems that allow parts of the brain to be more efficient at what they do, but also to connect across uh, the hemispheres from side to side and the lobes within each hemisphere. The gray matter, which is really our information processing units, if you will, 
are increasingly interconnected, and this uh, process really gains uh, speed during adolescence, and these interconnections continue to form and to form themselves in the system into the mid-20s. The white matter, the synapses and axons that comprise these neural networks, um, they comprise about 60% of a fully formed adult brain, and the white matter is really the connections, the wiring, if you will, between the gray matter information processing systems. So um, starting at the, at the onset of puberty, there is the pruning of networks in the free uh, prefrontal cortex. Um, that begins and uh, has, is slowly staged through the course of adolescence. Um, there is enhanced sensitivity of dopamine receptors, which is the reward system of the brain. So that adolescents, as compared to adults, uh, tend to experience things with kind of an enthusiasm and an intensity uh, that reflects uh, the reward system. It also contributes to their interest in novelty and in what we might think of as thrill-seeking or sensation-seeking behavior. And what is occurring is as the brain continues to develop from back to front, um, the midbrain, which contains the amygdala, which is, uh, if you will, the emotion center or part of a, a critical emotion network in the brain, and the hippocampus, which is responsible for functions like memory and learning and, if you will, kind of file searching in your brain so you can organize uh, things that you've learned in a way that you can retrieve them. These mature first, and so there is a period of time during adolescence in which, if you will, the, the midbrain is more mature than the frontal lobes are, and that's where we see some of uh, this imbalance or what will be more balanced as they mature into adulthood. Uh, we begin to see how this reflected in um, adolescent behavior because they have not yet completely organized the system of emotional and social and cognitive controls in brain systems across the brain. So what does this tell us? Before the era of neuroimaging, we really didn't have many opportunities to see what was going on inside of uh, a living brain. Since that time, we've been able to literally look inside the functioning brains of many, many adolescents. And while the science isn't good enough to let us take an fMRI, for example, a brain scan of a particular adolescent and, you know, kind of get a neural fingerprint, we can group all of this data together and get in broad strokes what's going on through the period of adolescent brain development. The first thing that we now know is that adolescent brains are different than adult brains, both functionally and structurally. That is not only how they're built, but also how, they're work, how they work. Adolescent brains are literally sponges. They are wired for stimulation, uh, previance, uh, preference for the immediacy of perceived rewards, and to be responsive to novelty. In fact, in some research, adolescents are much more likely than adults to pick a completely new and novel solution to a problem over solutions that they have had experience with and might have a better idea of whether or not to be likely to work. As the frontal cortex matures in mid-adolescence, 16, 17, 18, and on into the early 20s, you see improved self-control as executive functions improve. Executive functions refer to things like the ability to control impulses, to set up goal-directed behavior, to look at choices and to forecast increasingly um, more reliably what the, what the likelihood is that those forecasts, those, those goals uh, will be achieved, and to process information uh, at an abstract level uh, so that we can see patterns across situations, across people, across social environments, across physical environments and the like. Now, what this means is between the onset of puberty and especially mid to later adolescence, we see a sharp jump in impulsivity, uh, but that declines with age. There is a sharp increase in sensation-seeking and preference for novelty. Uh, thankfully, that will also decline with age. There's a, a period of time in mid-adolescence 
where preferences for risky but high-impact sensation-seeking behavior goes up at exactly the same time that their ability to accurately assess and apply that risk to themselves goes down. Now, this is a little bit complicated because if you were to ask most 14- or 15-year-olds, are you safer or less safe if you're in a car wearing a seatbelt? They'll look at you as as though you've lost your mind, and they'll say, well, of of course uh, you're safer with a seatbelt. Are you likely to be healthier or less healthy if you smoke tobacco products every day? And they'll do the same thing, and they'll say, but of course I'm healthier if I'm not smoking tobacco products every day. Are you uh, safer or less safe if you wear a helmet while you are skateboarding? And they will say, well, what's wrong with you? Of course I'm safer if I'm wearing a helmet. So on a cognitive level, uh, they can identify risky and less risky behaviors. But compared to adults, they're much less likely to actually apply that information to themselves and their personal circumstances. In later adolescence, these um, ability to perceive risks and apply it to yourself uh, increases. And uh, I'll, I'll talk about that in just a minute more because there's a really fascinating process by which adolescents uh, use and process information across different kinds of circumstances. As they mature, they're able to be more future-oriented. They're more able to delay gratification. Uh, this will decline initially in adolescence and uh, then increases with age, the ability to put something off in order to achieve goals. Every parent, for example, uh, knows uh, that kids need to be reminded of things that they need to mindfully construct in order to achieve their goals. For example, if I asked my son when he was a freshman in high school, did he plan to go to college, uh, he would always say yes, quite genuinely. But that didn't necessarily mean that in the moment he was going to choose his uh, doing his homework over sitting with the Xbox or being out with his friends. That would take some time for him to actually put into behaviors the things that he would need to do in order to achieve, outside of that moment, a future goal like going to, to, to college. You know, um, Robert, you. If, if I could, you know, I, I wanted to just ask you, um, for those of us who we certainly can all remember our own a- a- adolescent uh, existence, and for those of us who may be the parents of, of adolescents, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm reminded of this concept of invincibility. You know, oh, my son or my daughter... She, he or she thinks they're invincible. Um, is that really, I mean, is that sort of what we're talking about here in terms of, you know, yes, they know that wearing a seatbelt is, you know, the safer thing to do, but they don't do it for themselves, or they know that wearing a helmet when they're on a, a, a bicycle or on a scooter, that's the safer thing to do, but they don't do it for themselves because, of course, they think they're invisible. In, I'm sorry, invincible. Is that what, is that what we're talking about here? That's one of the ways in which it uh, shows itself and and pretty common. So on a cognitive level, they can assess the risk, but they're poorer than adults are. And, of course, there's a huge range of ways in which different individual adolescents will respond. But as a group, adolescents are worse than adults in actually personalizing risks that they may be assuming in their actual conduct. So... um, Adolescents know that if you're a new driver and you're driving fast at night on an unfamiliar road, um, you're more likely to have an accident. Uh, Insurers know that too. But an adolescent is much more likely to take driving risks, partly out of lack of practice, uh, but partly because they really can't see themselves as being involved in a major accident. It's fascinating. Um, So... It, it it also reminds me of, uh, you know, that we need to be, before we get into any conversation about criminal behavior, and we'll do that uh, later on in the conversation, it's important for us all to recognize just sort of um, what the normal uh, neurodevelopment is uh, of, of individuals at an early age. Um, before we can get into a conversation about trying to understand the drivers of criminal behavior. So any final thoughts about sort of this 
topic of neurodevelopment, adolescence, and the move into adulthood before we move to a break? Sure. Um, and maybe a good way to approach this is in, in two ways, because uh, I do want to explain uh, briefly how it is that adolescents can actually make good decision, decisions normatively as well. But um, ask yourself, at, at what age did you begin constructing a life of your own that you did not always make your parents uh, or, or guardians uh, privy to? When did you begin constructing your own life that had a privacy separate from the life you had within your family with your parents? How many of us have done something at least once during adolescence um, where had things gone a little more badly than they did, there could have been a terrible and negative outcome or something that we did or participated in where we still haven't told our parents and probably never will uh, what we did on, on that particular weekend with those particular friends. We do know uh, that the presence of peers uh, shapes their behaviors greatly. Uh, we do know that when they are emotionally aroused uh, or highly stimulated, that will shape their behavior greatly. That will play in more in uh, criminal behavior as we talk further. Um, and they also appreciate novelty and exploration, and we like that, uh, especially when it's in pro-social ways. I do want to say, however, that by the time adolescents are about 16, 17, they are about as good as most adults in making uh, medical informed consent decisions, for example, or participating as defendants in a legal proceeding. Um, and so that same adolescent um, who went out on a, on a Saturday night uh, drinking too much beer uh, in a car with friends who's participating in making terrible decisions um, if they're in what's called a cold cognition context, where they've got time, um, they can talk to people, they can think things through, that same adolescent might be able to make rational, very complicated medical informed consent, uh, consent decisions. Um, and I'll close this part of our conversation by the following illustration. A colleague of mine has uh, a son who is very gifted in physics, honors list at a major university, very, very studious, uh, freshman year, uh, making dean's list, studying physics. They were immensely surprised to discover uh, in April uh, when they received a phone call from a local constabulary in Florida that their son had been arrested, entirely intoxicated, with several of his friends running naked through a marina while they were on spring break. Uh, that kind of behavior on screen, uh, spring break is a good illustration of where the vulnerabilities of adolescents, even in a high-functioning, high-achieving adolescent, reflects where they are developmentally, although this is the same kid who's going to go back from spring break and, and score A's on physics exams. So this is sort of the, the normative world of the adolescents as their brain develops, Mark. We're talking with Dr. Robert Kinscherf of William James College and the Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior at Massachusetts General Hospital. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to Off Paper. In an effort to assist officers and judges in keeping up with the latest legal and practice developments and empirical research relevant to pretrial work, the FJC is pleased to offer pretrial decision-making for magistrate judges and pretrial services officers. FJC educators and peer faculty facilitate this one-day in-district program. The curriculum provides opportunities for scenario-based experiential learning and interactive discussions among judges, officers, and faculty focusing on topics such as the Bail Reform Act, evidence-based pretrial risk assessment, and alternatives to detention. In-district delivery of the program allows it to be customized to the needs of the district. For more information, just go to fjc.dcn's Probation and Pretrial Services Education page and click on In-Person and Blended Programs. We're back with Dr. Robert Kinscherf. So, Robert, you've described normative adolescent brain development and what it means behaviorally for an individual, both in adolescence and adulthood. Um, now, I want to move beyond that to discuss what can happen in terms of brain development and behavior when a person 
during adolescence endures intense prolonged exposure to adversity and stress. And I mention this because recently I watched a TED Talk by Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, who's a pediatrician and founder of the Center for Youth Wellness in San Francisco. And her topic was how childhood trauma affects health across a lifetime. In that talk, she referred to what she called adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs for short. And interestingly, you know, the term adverse childhood experiences may sound self-explanatory and maybe not all that serious, but Dr. Burke Harris made it clear that they can be very significant. She didn't really get into how those experiences can lead to behavior that could drive an individual into criminal into the criminal justice system, but she certainly raised points that could could and should make criminal justice professionals think about that. So can you describe, Robert, what adverse childhood experiences or ACEs are and how they might influence behavior in a negative way? Sure. So maybe a place to begin is to just acknowledge that one of the ways human beings develop normatively is to learn how to handle stressors that come their ways. And so One way of thinking about this is that all human beings will face stress and adversity in our lives. That's just part of the human condition. But these might have different developmental impacts depending upon uh, the nature of the adversity and uh, the buffers and resources available to a child experiencing adversity. So at one level, we have what I would characterize as developmentally normative stresses and adversities. Uh, children have to learn how to separate to go to uh, daycare, for example. And the, they need to be able to engage with new people who come into their lives, things that may be uh, transiently stressful, but also give them experiences from which they can learn. Children may also be exposed to stressors that would be more difficult for them to handle by themselves. So there are some children who are more sensitive to changes in their environments or transitions. And so the question then becomes, uh, is there an adult, usually a parent or other caretaker, who helps buffer them um, as they go through these adverse experiences and help them learn to cope with them, to manage them, and to experience them in a way that actually contributes to their continued growth? Uh, For example... The best predictor of the outcome of a small child when the family has been in a major natural disaster like a hurricane or a tornado, um, anything along those lines, is not how severe the weather was uh, or what was destroyed, uh, the house, the block, uh, sometimes even whole cities. The most valuable predictor of how a young child will adapt after a disaster like that, is um, how the the caregiver, usually the parent, responded. If the parent responds with calm and uh, the ability to kind of maintain basic scheduling is reassuring to the child, uh, that child is going to fare much better than a parent who is anxious and panicked and distraught and uh, seems to be unable to cope themselves. When there is a failure of that protective capacity, children may then have uh, overwhelming experiences of anxiety and distress. And so when we talk about adversities, it's important to distinguish between adversities that contribute to a child's growth or can be managed in ways that contribute to their growth and those that become traumatizing. And we need to keep those two uh, concepts separate uh, because trauma is different in adversity Um, although adversity may give rise to to trauma. When a child is distraught like that, it activates the body's fight-flight system, and a lot of things go on in the child's metabolism and hormones and brain that are really uh, evolutionary responses to a sense of imminent serious threat. When children are in environments where they are chronically Um, being hyper-aroused and distressed like that, uh, one of the terms that people have used to describe that is toxic stress, that the child's biology is being constantly challenged by a sense of imminent threat. So a child, for example, who is in a house where there's chronic and severe domestic violence, 
or a child who experiences multiple losses of attachment as they move through early childhood. So with that in mind, um, let's jump to what will at first seem a little unrelated, but we'll see how it comes back together. The Centers for Disease Control and the Kaiser Permanente Medical System in Southern California some years ago were interested in discovering who are the adults that uh, come into medical care earlier in their adult lives with chronic or difficult to manage um, medical conditions that you usually don't see until later in life. So who are the people showing up in their 20s and early 30s with difficult to manage aggressive hypertension? Who are the people that are showing up in their 30s and 40s with cirrhotic livers or uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD? Who are the people that are showing up with difficult to manage type 2 diabetes and the like? So this was a medical study, and the purpose was to try and identify people who soak up a lot of uh, resources in the healthcare system, uh, more than most average uh, adults who are in insurance pools. And so there were two physicians in this study who uh, believed that the answer was not going to lie in a careful examination of medical histories. And so they convinced the researchers to include, as they interviewed and looked at the records of uh, literally tens of thousands of people in the Kaiser Permanente medical care system, um, 10 questions. And the questions were really, did any of these or did this happen to you prior to the age of 18? And what they asked about were all intrafamilial events for the most part. So they were not given enough questions to ask other things we might care about, like were you ever seriously bullied in school? Did you ever witness a serious injury or a homicide in your community? That sort of thing. Uh, there's not even a question about natural disasters or dislocations of the family. But they did ask about emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional and physical neglect, whether or not uh, the maternal caretaker, female caretaker, usually the mother, had been the victim of domestic violence, whether one or both uh, parents uh, were substance abusers, whether one or both parents had a mental illness or had attempted suicide or com com completed a suicide during child before age 18, whether or not biological parents had separated or divorced prior to age 18, and uh, was a parent incarcerated. And they uh, ran this data, and they were really kind of tapping in here uh, to toxic forms of chronic stress or trauma um, like severe or chronic neglect or chronic exposure to family and caretaker violence, multiple disruptions of caretaker attachment and, and child maltreatment, especially in preschool years. And what they discovered was quite surprising, which was that the people who had higher ACEs scores, the higher your ACEs score, the more likely you were uh, to show up in adulthood with these uh, more serious and persisting medical conditions. Uh, that these folks were di disproportionately represented amongst the people who were uh, uh, consuming resources inside of the healthcare system. So at the very beginning, we had something of a puzzle, which was the higher your adversity in childhood, uh, the more likely you were to be an ill and expensive and chronic uh, medical patient in adulthood and to die earlier but we didn't know what the connections were. Since that time, we've learned that uh, there is a, a pattern. Now, I, I want to emphasize that this is risks, but it's not a fate. So there are people who will have high ACEs scores but who have also had resiliency and protective factors that have prevented them from uh, sort of developing along this full pathway. But what we learned was that... Uh, Children who were exposed to uh, chronic stressors or toxic stress, multiple adversities in childhood, were early adopters of health risk behaviors. So the next connection was made between the ACEs, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Score, and things like starting to smoke tobacco products earlier, starting to drink earlier, starting to um, 
uh, have unprotected sex earlier. For reasons we don't understand, the higher the ACEs score, the more likely you are to be the victim of uh, crime in adulthood. Uh, the more likely you are to have um, difficulties with maintaining employment or stable relationships and the like. And so all of these risk factors uh, were kind of bundled in a trajectory towards uh, problems with physical health later in adulthood. The next piece of the puzzle was to back that up, and we learned that many of the people who were adopting health risk behaviors earlier were also struggling as children. They were more likely to have difficulties in school. They were more likely to come into contact with child protective services, more likely to have earlier and more extensive involvement in juvenile justice. And it was up to the neuroscientists to help us complete this picture. So the picture now looks like the higher your exposure to adverse childhood experiences that result in toxic stress, the more likely you are to show disruptive neurodevelopment. This neurodevelopmental disruption includes uh, emotional regulation centers of the brain like the amygdala, centers of the brain like the hippocampus that are critical for efficient and effective learning, and the prefrontal cortex. So the picture now looks like higher the ACEs score, more likely to have disrupted neurodevelopment. That in turn contributes to problems in social, emotional, and cognitive functioning that contribute to things like uh, social difficulties, academic failure at school, greater likelihood of impulsive behaviors, greater likelihood of child protection and then juvenile justice involvement, special educational involvement, and the like, which leads in turn to a higher risk of adopting these health risk behaviors um, and then showing up later because obviously if you started smoking cigarettes when you were nine, you're going to show up with COPD earlier. If you started drinking heavily when you were 11, you're going to show up with problems with your liver earlier. All these sorts of things. And many of the social problems that they have, especially substance use, are likely to also contribute to academic failure and employment compromise, but also contact with juvenile and adult criminal justice systems. So what does this mean for us? What it means is the higher the individual's ACEs score, um, the more likely they are to pick up substance abuse, risky behaviors, be victimized by crime, and also to have precipitated earlier a more extensive psychiatric history. This might include post-traumatic stress disorder, but it also includes mood disorders like depression, uh, anxiety disorders, and uh, the precipitation earlier of psychotic episodes if somebody has a vulnerability to a psychotic disorder like schizophrenia. The higher the ACEs score, the more likely they are to experience school failure and underachievement, early pregnancy. Interestingly enough, they are more at risk of self-harm or self-risking behaviors and history of aggression to, uh, to others. If they have juvenile court involvement, they're more likely to have probation failures that move them more deeply into the juvenile justice system. They often, even if they have started with relatively stable, even privileged um, family circumstances, they're more likely to experience social drift downwards as they fail, fail to achieve in school and in work and find themselves in, for want of a better term, criminogenic environments high-crime neighborhoods, high-turnover neighborhoods, income instability, housing instability, and the like. They're more likely to penetrate earlier the criminal justice system on both minor and major charges, and then to show up uh, in adulthood, as we've seen at the beginning of this puzzle, we've been solving um, medical uh, conditions in adulthood. So, Robert, that that uh, really brings me to my next question, uh, which is, you know, we hear a lot of, in the news media about something called the school to prison pipeline, uh, which especially not surprisingly disproportionately affects kids who live in low income communities. Um, and as you were describing the impact just now of high adversity and toxic stress during adolescence, um, 
I couldn't help thinking that if communities, meaning schools, community health clinics, law enforcement, etc., were better able to identify these issues and intervene earlier, we might see some significant improvements in the situation. So, you know, can you describe what you yourself have seen in this regard as both a clinician and a lawyer? Yes. Um, having done this now for some 30 years and having had the chance to see both rural um, and urban communities as well as suburban communities, um, I, I think the research is uh, overwhelming and is borne out in facts on the ground, which is um, the more intense the poverty, uh, especially if it involves populations of color, uh, the more likely there is to be um, kind of a, the, the, the social challenges that come with poverty, income instability, housing instability, and the like, um, uh, criminality in the, the neighborhood, and so forth. So on the one hand, uh, children under those circumstances are more likely than other children to pick up earlier involvement with child protection systems and then special ed systems and then uh, juvenile justice and so on. That being said, uh, even for these children, for most of them, if they have uh, protective adults in their lives, parents or other caretakers, who buffer them from the adversities <clears throat> they face and equip them with a sense of skill and competence it allows them to transition adolescence into an adulthood where they can have stable relationships, uh, stable work, and the like. Um, most kids, even kids who have gotten themselves in trouble, will figure it out. So quite literally, about the time that a, a youth's brain turns on, uh, 18, 19, 20, into the mid-20s, you see this sharp self-desistance of misconduct amongst adolescents uh, delinquent misconduct, substance abuse, and uh, like, uh, for so long as they have had opportunities to be buffered and guided through their adversities and given opportunities to succeed in communities in ways that they find meaningful and are also legal. So again, I don't want to uh, describe this as a fate, but there is definitely an arc of risk uh, that begins with uh, exposures to adversity that you're much more likely to see in impoverished communities, especially if they are also communities of color. Uh, you're not going to be wildly surprised to hear that there are more ACE, higher ACEs scores in uh, some schools than in others, um, in more courthouses than in others, um, and it correlates strongly with um, social supports um, and social uh, disadvantages. My guest is Dr. Robert Kinscher for William James College and Massachusetts General Hospital Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior. After a break, I'll talk with Robert about ways criminal justice professionals, especially probation and pretrial services officers and judges, might use the information we're discussing here in their daily practice when it comes to things like pretrial and pre-sentence investigation, community supervision, the bail decision, and sentencing. I'm Mark Sherman, and this is Off Paper. Individuals with histories of trauma, mental health, and substance abuse disorders are among the criminal justice system's most significant challenges. Learning how to help and deal with them correctly requires knowing the science behind the most effective treatments for these individuals. To help judges and probation and pretrial services officers understand the role of science in federal criminal case recommendations and decisions, the FJC is offering a workshop on science-informed decision-making. The program is a collaboration between the FJC, the Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior at Massachusetts General Hospital, and the Petrie Flom Center for Health Law Policy, Biotechnology, and Bioethics at Harvard Law School. Participants in the two-and-a-half-day workshop will learn from some of the leading clinicians and researchers in the country about effective interventions at key criminal case decision points, including initial appearance, violation, pre-sentence investigation, and sentencing. The program is highly interactive, 
with district teams working through case studies grounded in actual federal court case scenarios. Each participating team works through the case studies with assistance from workshop faculty and clinical fellows who are experts in forensic psychiatry, psychology, and neuroscience. To learn more about this upcoming workshop offering, visit the Probation and Pretrial Services Education page at fjc.dcn. Dr. Robert Kinscherf is my guest. Robert, let's talk about how criminal justice professionals can take the information we've been discussing here and apply it to their daily work. You know, I know you're aware that in the federal system, probation and pretrial services have been making a lot of progress in the use of evidence-based practice in terms of implementation of the risk needs and responsivity framework for supervision. Particularly on the post-conviction side of things, we've learned that among the most important dynamic risk factors that officers need to target in their supervision of high-risk individuals are things like antisocial attitudes, antisocial friends and peers, and antisocial personality patterns. And then those are followed closely by things like family and marital factors, lack of education, poor employment history, lack of pro-social leisure activities, and substance use issues. It seems to me, though, that if we work backward from post-conviction, there must be things pretrial and probation officers can do earlier in the process to incorporate knowledge about ACEs, trauma, and toxic stress into their work, such as the development of the bail report or the pre-sentence report, which in turn might improve outcomes. So first, what are your thoughts about that? And second, you know, what can judges do with this knowledge in terms of their roles in making bail and sentencing decisions? I think there's a lot that can be done, actually, um, that does not have to wait until the post-sentencing supervision, uh, and certainly doesn't have to wait until uh, a person may be returning from a term of uh, post-sentencing incarceration. But let me sort of back up one step and say that there'll be uh, folks who uh, come into the, the court system who uh, seem to have done quite well developmentally and then kind of uh, fallen off the truck at some point when they were in adolescence, and they may have been involved uh, quite extensively in criminal misconduct. Uh, most of them are going to catch uh, the wave of self-desistance and kind of figure out uh, their, their lives. Um, they've had an opportunity to experience stable attachments and success in things like education and so forth. And so I think of them as rehabilitation. We're trying to get them back developmentally to where they were and help them develop the competencies and skills that they would have had they not uh, gotten involved in the criminal misconduct or addiction or some other uh, problem that derailed them. There will be some people whose history of adversity, however, has been chronic, dates to early childhood, who have never really had the opportunity to experience uh, benign and supportive uh, attachments and, and supports even inside their own family, uh, or to have uh, been successful uh, socially or academically or in other sort of domain of their life and where the adversities have just continued to pile up as they've moved through. I don't think of them as rehabilitation uh, so much as habilitation in the first place. And these are folks where uh, we may want to take a little bit different lens on understanding their experience and uh, how they're going to experience their contacts with us. So uh, many of the people who have had a chronic exposures to adversity that date back to childhood, uh, especially if they've not had protective and buffering factors, have a very strong negative self-attribution. That is to say, uh, they carry a lot of uh, anger at themselves, a sense of failure about themselves, uh, shame about themselves, and they often have the expectation that they will fail uh, at anything that they try, no matter what it is that they do. And they may not even articulate it clearly in quite that way, but there's this kind of fundamental feeling in their bones that they're not going to succeed. They've been betrayed by people uh, who said, I'm here to help you, or feel betrayed by them. And so there's often a distrust of people, uh, especially people who uh, uh, assert that they're there to help them to be successful. They don't really expect it to be protected by other people. They don't think that they... 
will have recourse to uh, understanding or social justice uh, or uh, assistance in uh, sort of managing their own sense of, uh, of their, their need to, to retribute against others for uh, perceived or real transgressions against them. And quite frankly, they view themselves as both inevitably failing and going to be inevitably victimized by any system or individual with whom they come in contact. So they are often very, very wary folks. So if we understand that these are the folks that, uh, at least some of whom, are going to show up uh, in court systems and we layer on top of that adversity challenges with addictions, um, and diagnosable and treatable mental health conditions, uh, they're really going to constitute a different population. And I think in order to work effectively with them, we need to know about their histories of adversity and we need to know how that history has shaped their functioning so that we can fine-tune supervision at the pre-trial, uh, pre-sentencing and post-sentencing phases of the, uh, the, the course of a, of a case. Some of the strategies that people have uh, adopted is to begin to learn about and to incorporate histories of adversity uh, in some places even using the ACES tool or other tools that catalog adversities to make sure that all of the, the questions are, are asked. I was recently in a federal district where it was routine to ask about things like uh, uh, parental criminality or uh, uh, parental addiction or mental illness. It was routine to talk about histories of physical or sexual abuse, but it wasn't routine to ask, uh, did you live in a family where you believed that at least one of the people taking care of you uh, thought you were uh, special and lovable and deserving? That is to say, we're really tapping into um, emotional abuse, which research tells us is at least, if not more toxic than physical abuse, for example. So one of the things that understanding this history of adversity can help us do is identify um, what were the resiliency and protective factors that they relied upon if, in fact, they've had periods of time in their lives when they were more successful. How can we identify those to build on them? Um, or what can we target for and prioritize for support in helping somebody begin to believe in themselves as a, a successful project, if you will, as a, as a human being over the course of their lives. So we know that the system tends to build on itself, uh, that, for example, success at pretrial might lead to a sentence that minimizes incarceration or results in a probation sentence that keeps the individual community with access to community-based services. Uh, that would not be available uh, in prison. We know that whenever possible, consistent with public safety, people over time, especially if they are still relatively young in their teens up to their mid to late 20s, uh, tend to do better if they are maintained uh, in communities where they can access community-based services, uh, community-based responsibilities like jobs, um, and develop more pro-social social networks uh, in order to help them succeed. Um, there's not a whole lot that is particularly optimistic about the outcomes of uh, prolonged incarceration uh, for persons, especially if that incarceration begins earlier in the life cycle uh, when they are late teens or, or early or early 20s. And there is an emerging movement in state and federal courts to begin to build this kind of information into how people are considered. So at one end is a federal district where um, probation information uh, is, is, is under consideration about whether or not to begin collecting the ACEs information at the time of intake and to continue to flush that information out as the person moves through the the legal proceedings in which they are involved. Uh, a federal jurisdiction which now includes for pre-sentencing reports um, information on, on ACEs. Uh, in New Jersey, they include uh, information regarding pretrial performance and ACEs in the pre-sentencing report. 
kind of moving this information down the line for uh, consideration by a sentencing judge if, if it gets to that point. And um, in New Jersey, they've also been looking to increase their awareness about uh, at all phases in probation and amongst the sentencing judges about what the Bureau of Prisons can and cannot do in terms of its actual capacities for providing uh, psychiatric treatment or substance abuse treatment or uh, co-occurring treatment since the new normal is that many people coming into our court system will have both a co-occurring uh, behavioral health mental disorder and a substance use disorder. The Northern District of Florida has been using ACEs um, information at the pretrial interview and intake process, and where the defendant scores a 7 or higher on the ACEs score, which is a possible of 10, uh, this automatically triggers a referral for a mental health evaluation because these are people who are most likely to present with challenging co-occurring disorders, as I just described. At the other end of the process, um, there is an, a very interesting and innovative deferred sentencing program in the Federal District of Rhode Island, uh, which has been operating for a little over a year and which I've been privileged uh, enough to join as a clinical consultant and team member uh, since July, and where they have been using uh, an ACEs-informed approach to looking at people uh, who otherwise would have had pretty significant incarceration time and are showing what I would, I would certainly characterize as initial success with some pretty challenging cases. They are choosing cases that are not cherry-picked, that are not the easiest, lowest-risk people who probably would have uh, done well no matter what we did with them. So I guess what I'm trying to convey is there are things that we can do at all points in this system that we know can help uh, inform us in what to expect and how to construct opportunities for people to succeed. For example, uh, we know that addiction is a chronic disease. People are increasingly comfortable with tolerating at least some number of dirty urines and relapses before violating people permanently. Uh, and incarcerating them because we know we just need to build relapse in. We come to appreciate that we don't go from addiction to abstinence overnight. What we're really looking for is a progress of fewer and fewer lapses. And when people do lapse, this is an, an event which triggers an effort to seek assistance rather than binging and violating conditions of probation until uh, they get reeled in. We've learned that we want to prioritize uh, and have fewer conditions of probation and to avoid wherever possible uh, violations on technical conditions of probation. Um, we know that piling on conditions of probation on people who are often functionally quite impaired is uh, really setting them up for failure, so we need to think very clearly from the beginning uh, what are our strategic goals here how do we help them succeed? And ACES information can often um, help inform that decision. Uh, we've also learned that um, if incarceration is required for a sanction, um, and this is, I, I just want to emphasize, this is not about uh, avoiding accountability. This is about trying to generate programs of accountability, accountability, accountability like graduated sanctions uh, that are proportionate and likely to help somebody succeed rather than punitive and likely to drive them further into the system. But we've learned, for example, that if somebody comes up with a dirty urine and they have before, and you've told them that the next time they do that, they'll have to spend some time behind bars. You get the same mileage out of uh, incarcerating them over a weekend as you do incarcerating them for 30 days or 60 days or 90 days. The goal is to impose a sanction that allows them to continue to learn rather than isolating them uh, from the, the commu community whenever that might be possible. Some probation departments have really uh, taken this to heart. Um, one example of that is the state probation department in Multnomah County, which is the area of Portland, Oregon, where they have devised 
probationary practices that range from the way in which they physically um, arrange their office space uh, to make it look less uh, forbidding and more welcoming and helpful to people who are coming into uh, their physical space, to using motivational interview techniques um, in order to become supervising collaborators uh, with, the, with the defendants who are before them, um, either pretrial or on community-based uh, supervision. So I guess in, in short form, Mark, there are, are a lot of things that people can do. There are a few, if any, places that have become entirely uh, ACEs-informed or trauma-informed from the moment of arraignment to the moment of reentry, but there are certainly pockets of promising practice in both state and federal systems that give us a lot to think about and a lot of ideas that we might be able to apply locally. You know, Robert, one of the things, um, you said a lot there, obviously, but one of the things that really strikes me um, is thinking about how sort of the research in criminology, uh, which has really advanced to this state where we've got the risk-needs-responsivity framework and evidence-based practice that's being used both in the federal and state systems uh, increasingly, uh, and the the combination of the, the sort of the criminology research and the neuroscience research and how it really seems to be coming together here. And I, I'm based on what you just sort of described, um, which is it's very striking um, because this is really about sort of trying to achieve a more responsive criminal justice system, which means improved accountability um, on the part of the justice-involved individual, and certainly on the part of the system, but also uh, recidivism reduction, moving toward that that goal uh, of, of improved recidivism reduction, because we know uh, that so much of, you know, uh, so much of the problem within our criminal justice system has to do with, quote-unquote, repeat offenders, Right. So um, I, I'm, I'm just struck by how these two areas of research seem to be coming together in order to to improve the way our system works. And actually, the, the importance of thinking about it systemically from beginning to end, from, you know, uh, we have a colleague, you and I, who says uh, constantly that, you know, reentry begins at arrest. Right. So thinking about it systemically from the beginning, arrest through post-incarceration supervision if incarceration is involved, and the importance of, if we can, keeping people in the community so that they can get the services that they need, which they are probably not going to get uh, in, in, a, in a prison environment, um, depending on where they're in prison and, and, and all, of, all of the variables that go along with it. So uh, in our final couple of minutes here, any uh, reactions to that? I think that's entirely right. I think this is one of the points where uh, research in criminology, research in uh, the development of adolescents uh, and young adults uh, up through their, their 30s, and the neuroscience is coming together. If we can agree that the best form of uh, outcome for us is uh, driving down our intolerably high recidivism rates, um, and we think of that as future victim prevention, this is something that I think anybody uh, who looks at the science can agree is, is our goal. Whether I'm a prosecutor or a defender, uh, a judge, a probation officer, uh, somebody in the community, law enforcement, whatever will work to drive down uh, recidivism, especially violent recidivism, is something we should be able to get on board simply because we know that we can get better outcomes from doing business differently than we have over the, the past couple of decades. Um, and I'll just clo uh, close on sort of a, an observation by uh, a colleague of mine, uh, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with him, Vincent Chiraldi, mm -hmm. who um, at one point he and I were talking and he said that you know, his, his many years of, of being an officer, probation officer, and then probation administrator uh, in uh, D.C., the District of Columbia, and then in, in New York, uh, forced him to the conclusion 
you can either rigidly enforce compliance or you can support positive change, but you can't do both at the same time. And so I think just as uh, parents need to make judgments about accountability uh, amongst their own children, depending upon the child, the circumstances of misconduct, the nature of the misconduct, we have to empower um, probation uh, staff, judges, and others uh, to be able to make these distinctions amongst the individuals that, that are coming before them. In medicine, the more complicated the case, uh, the more individualized the treatment plan has to be. And I would argue that in criminal justice, the more complicated the individual, uh, the more adverse their history, the more individualized our response has to be uh, to achieve the, the common outcome of reduced recidivism. Robert Kinsherf, thank you so much for talking with us. A pleasure and a privilege, Mark. Thank you. My guest has been Dr. Robert Kinsherf, a clinical and forensic psychologist and attorney who serves currently as Associate Vice President at William James College in Newton, Massachusetts. Between 2015 and 2017, he was a senior fellow in law and neuroscience at the Project on Law and Applied Neuroscience, a collaboration between the Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior at Massachusetts General Hospital and the Petrie Flom Center for Health Law Policy at Harvard Law School. Off Paper is produced by Paul Van Vass. The program is directed by Craig Bowden. I'm Mark Sherman. Thanks for listening. See you next time.